0: Hey, everyone. It's Manoush Samarodi here. I'm the new host of the TED Radio Hour. In about a month, you're going to start hearing brand new episodes of the show again with me. But while the team and I are working on those, I want to share with you some of my favorite episodes from this show from the past few years. So on today's show, we are looking at the difference between moving on and moving forward. Because when things go wrong, when we experience trauma or grief, we are often told it's best to move on and find a way to get over it. But is that really for the best? On the show today, we're taking a look at what it means to move forward without letting go of the past. This episode first aired in June 2019. Enjoy.
1: This is the TED Radio Hour So, in the fall of 2014, writer Nora McInerney was going through something devastating. Something a lot of us might struggle to even imagine.
0: Yeah, that's that's the common reaction, is sort of a... (sighs) Or saying, I can't imagine. And the thing is, we can. All of us, we can. We can imagine all of these things. It's just very uncomfortable to do it and it is also sort of a futile exercise there's no amount of imagining that would prepare you in any way for it so I don't blame anyone for not wanting to imagine it because I wouldn't have either
1: it started on a day in October
0: yeah anyone who has been through something hard can recap all of their tragedies for you as if they're listing their grocery list so here's mine October 3rd, I lost my second pregnancy. It was 11 weeks and six days, which is like, you just feel as if there's a magical 12-week mark where you're past the first trimester and then nothing bad can happen. And that's absolutely not true. But I did have that feeling sitting there in the doctor's office thinking like, oh, if only I'd waited till tomorrow to come in. Then the baby would have been alive. Just this magical thinking and downstairs in the parking structure was my husband who was dying of brain cancer. And 5 days later my dad was dead. And 6 weeks later my husband Aaron was dead. And so it was this wave after wave after wave of, of loss, and that marked the end of 2014 for me. I, I didn't know how to do any of this. I was completely new to all of it. It was the first time my dad had died, the first time I'd <laughs> lost a husband, the first yeah. time I'd lost a pregnancy, and I didn't know how to sit with my own discomfort and my own pain. <laughs> I wanted to be anywhere else.
1: Nora McInerney shared her story on the TED stage.
0: So since all of this loss happened, I've made it um, a career to talk about death and loss, not just my own, because it's pretty easy to recap, but um, the losses and tragedies that other people have experienced. It's a niche, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just trying to do what I can to make more people comfortable with the uncomfortable, and grief is so uncomfortable. It's so uncomfortable, especially if it's someone else's grief. So a part of that work is this group that I started with my friend Mo, who is also a widow. We call it the Hot Young Widows Club. (laughs) And it's real. We have membership cards and T-shirts. And when your person dies, your husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, your friends and your family are just going to sort of look around through friends of friends of friends of friends until they find someone who's gone through something similar, and then they'll push you towards each other so you can talk amongst yourselves and not get your sad on other people. (laughs) So that's what we do. It's just a series of small groups where men, women, gay, straight, married, partnered can talk about their dead person and say the things that the other people in their lives aren't ready or willing to hear yet. Most of the conversations that we have in the group can and will just stay amongst ourselves, but there are things that we talk about that the rest of the world, the world that is grief-adjacent but not yet grief-stricken, could really benefit from hearing. And if you can't tell, I'm only interested in slash capable of unscientific studies. So what I did was go to the Hot Young Widows Club and say, hello, friends, remember when your person died, do you remember all the things people said to you? Which ones did you hate the most? I got, there were a lot of comments, a lot of answers, but two rose to the top pretty quickly. Moving on. Now, since 2014, I will tell you, I have remarried a very handsome man named Matthew. We have four children in our blended family. We live in the suburbs of Minneapolis, Minnesota, USA. I drive a minivan, like the kind where doors open, I don't even touch them. Like, <laughs> By any measure, life is really, really good, but I haven't moved on. I haven't moved on, and I hate that phrase so much, and I understand why other people do, because what it says is that Aaron's life and death and love are just moments that I can leave behind me and that I probably should. And when I talk about Aaron, I slip so easily into the present tense because the people we love, who we've lost, are still so present for us. So when I say, oh, Aaron is, it's because Aaron still is. He's indelible, and so he's present for me.
1: Would people say, literally say to you, um, you need to figure out how to move on? Or did, 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 Like, was that something somebody articulated to you just like that?
0: People would say, um, I mean... <laughs> People say so many things. And they don't mean them no, badly, no, which is what right. makes it so hard. But also, I would hate people, like, basically <laughs> immediately. So they would say, like, I mean, you know, you'll meet someone, you'll move on. Um, you'll get over this. And I wrote a book, and it came out um, maybe not even a year and a half after Aaron died. And people would say to me, you know, it's so amazing to see how you've moved on. <laughs> and I would think, why do you think that? And also, why would that be my goal? Yeah. And it hurt, too, because I I was with somebody when that book came out. Our families were blending together. I was pregnant, and I felt horrible about it. Like, I felt horrible for feeling any sort of happiness. And then I felt horrible for not appreciating my happiness. Mm. And I felt horrible that people would think that the beginning of this relationship meant that I didn't care about Aaron anymore. But in reality, I haven't had a day since he died where I haven't thought about him. Yeah. And it's not always sad. Like, I like to be able to think about him. Yeah. And I like for people to remember him. And um, what we had was, like, such a good marriage and such a normal marriage, really. Like, we were married for three years, and it's, it's unusual for two people in their early 30s to spend a Friday night on the oncology floor eating White Castle. And it was also so fun, which sounds so strange, but, like... Those were the hardest years of my life to date, and I do think they were the happiest. When you watch your person fill himself with poison for three years just so he can stay alive a little bit longer with you, that stays with you. When you watch your son, who isn't even two years old yet, walk up to his father's bed on the last day of his life, like he knows what's coming in a few hours, and say, I love you, all done. Bye-bye. That stays with you. Just like when you fall in love, finally, like really fall in love with someone who gets you and sees you, and you even see, oh my God, I've been wrong this entire time. Love is not a contest or a reality show. It's so quiet. It's this invisible thread of calm that connects the two of us even when everything is chaos, when things are falling apart, even when he's gone that stays with you. We used to do this thing because my hands are always freezing and he's so warm, where I would take my ice-cold hands and shove them up his shirt, (laughs) press them against his hot bod. (laughs) And he hated it so much, but he loved me. And after he died, I laid in bed with Aaron and I put my hands underneath him. And I felt his warmth. And I can't even tell you if my hands were cold, but I can tell you that I knew it was the last time I would ever do that. And that that memory is always going to be sad. That memory will always hurt, even when I'm 600 years old and I'm just a hologram. (laughs) Just like, The memory of meeting him is always going to make me laugh. Grief doesn't happen in this vacuum. It happens alongside of and mixed in with all of these other emotions. So I met Matthew, my current husband, who doesn't love that title. I met Matthew, and there's this audible sigh of relief among the people who love me, like, it's over. (laughs) She did it. (laughs) She got a happy ending. We can all go home. And um, we did good. And that narrative is so appealing, even to me. And I thought maybe I'd gotten that, too, but I didn't. I got another chapter, and it's such a good chapter. But especially at the beginning, it was like an alternate universe or one of those old choose-your-own-adventure books from the 80s where there are two parallel plot lines. So I opened my heart to Matthew and my brain was like, would you like to think about Aaron? Like the past, the present, future, Like just get in there. And I did. And all of a sudden, those two plots were unfurling at once, and falling in love with Matthew really helped me realize the enormity of what I lost when Aaron died. And just as importantly, it helped me realize that my love for Aaron and my grief for Aaron and my love for Matthew are not opposing forces. They're just strands to the same thread. They're the same stuff. So I have not moved on from Aaron. I've moved forward with him.
1: Moving forward is very different from moving on. It's about holding on to memories, even to pain. Because when what you're expecting doesn't work out and the life you've envisioned slips away, how do you cope? How do you reshape your expectations? Well, on the show today, we're gonna explore ideas on moving forward, how to create a new path without letting go of the past. And in just a moment, we're going to hear what Nora did to move forward after Aaron's death. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First, to E-Trade. Investing your money shouldn't require moving mountains, no matter how much or how little experience you have. E-Trade makes investing simpler. And for a limited time, get $100 when you open a new account with just $5,000. It's all about helping your money work hard for you. For more information, visit etrade.com slash learn more. e E-Trade Securities, LLC, member SIPC. Thanks also to Capital One. With a Capital One Saver Card, you can earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment. That means 4% on milkshakes with the kids and 4% on music with your pals. You'll also earn 2% cash back at grocery stores and 1% on all other purchases. Now, when you go out, you cash in. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Terms apply.
2: What's good, y'all? As you know, February is Black History Month. And all throughout that month, NPR's Code Switch is going to be running a special series about the history of Black resistance. Because as long as Black folks have been oppressed in this country, which is, you know, forever, we've also been fighting back. Listen and subscribe.
1: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about moving forward. And before the break, we were hearing from Nora McInerney about how she coped with a series of losses. And one of the ways she did it was to write her husband Aaron's obituary, which was published in their local paper. The first
0: line of it, I won't read you the whole thing, but I do remember the first line. It said, Per Mort Aaron Joseph, age 35, died due to complications from a radioactive spider bite <laughs> and from a years-long battle with a nefarious criminal named Cancer who has plagued our society for far too long. Aaron and I wrote that together the night he entered hospice because I just didn't want—I had written my dad's obituary after he died. And I remember struggling with my siblings, being like, what is the most important thing to put in this? Yeah. And why hadn't we asked my dad before he died? And the night Aaron was uh, told that there would be no more treatments and it was just going to be hospice care— I told him, we have to do this because I don't want to wonder, and I don't want to get anything wrong. And he had already made a funeral playlist because he did not trust my taste in music, and I do <laughs> not blame him because I have no taste. <laughs> and And we sat down, and he talked, and I typed, and we just like went back and forth and punched it up. And I was like, there's no way they'll publish this. But they did, and it went viral, and I got so many messages <laughs> from people, like, all kinds of people who had been through all kinds of things and not just death. And I would reply to them. And they were so shocked. I don't think that they were looking for a reply. They just wanted to feel heard. And they just wanted to feel seen. And and I let them tell it in their own words. Because in 2014, I just wanted to exist. Yeah. I just wanted to exist without... Being a sad story to somebody. Grief is kind of one of those things like falling in love or having a baby or watching The Wire on HBO where you don't get it until you get it, until you do it. And once you do it, once it's your love or your baby, once it's your grief and your front row at the funeral, you get it you understand what you're experiencing is not a moment in time, it's not a bone that will reset, but that you've been touched by something chronic, something incurable. It's not fatal, but sometimes grief feels like it could be. And if we can't prevent it in one another, what can we do? What can we do other than try to remind one another that some things can't be fixed, and not all wounds are meant to heal. We need each other to remember, to help each other remember that grief is this multitasking emotion, that you can and will be sad and happy, you'll be grieving and able to love in the same year or week, the same breath. We need to remember that a grieving person is going to laugh again and smile again. If they're lucky, they'll even find love again. That yes, absolutely, they're going to move forward.
1: I know you've both described it and alluded to it in, in this conversation, but um, but I want to ask you sort of a, a slightly different version of the question, which is, um, what is what is moving forward look like in your life? How does it? sort of practically appear.
0: Yeah. So for me, moving forward has been this, that in 2014, I lost a parent and I lost my husband and I lost a pregnancy. And my life in really almost every way is completely different than it was five years ago. I had one kid, and now I have four kids. Mm -hmm. I had one husband, and now I have two husbands, and one of them is dead, and one of them does my laundry, and now I have two mothers-in-law and two fathers-in-law, and all our kids have four sets of grandparents. We have a lot of grandparents. So moving forward is you're going to get up, you're going to go for a run, you're going to put on makeup, you're going to do your hair, you're going to show up, you're going to get a new job. Moving forward looks like moving on. If you look at me, but if you talked to me, if you talked to my family, you would know that the things that we've lived through, like we're aware of how they shaped us. And consciously moving forward, to me, is
1: is choosing to live. That's Nora McInerney. She's the author of the book The Hot Young Widows Club, and she also hosts a podcast about grief and loss. It's called Terrible. Thanks for asking. You can find Nora's full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about moving forward, which, as Nora made pretty clear, is different than moving on. Moving forward is about holding on to past experiences, even when you could just try to forget.
3: I guess the bottom line is I didn't want to forget. Yeah. You know what? I'm like this. Why why would someone want to forget something if it makes them a better person? This is
1: Lindy Lou Eisenhood.
3: I was Lindy Lou Wells when all this stuff was going on. But I'm Lindy Lou Eisenhood and I'm from Yazoo City, Mississippi. I'm just a grandmother and a wife. I've been retired since…
1: And the stuff that was going on that Lindy didn't want to forget? It happened in 1994, when she was assigned to serve as a juror on a case that would change her life.
3: This man had murdered two women. And I will say that it was a very heinous and atrocious crime that he committed. and. I think the trial lasted four or five days. And what I noticed, I guess the first two days, I just kind of sit there and thought, man, this man is, he's a monster. He deserves the death penalty. I mean, here in Mississippi, that's not a subject that's really discussed. You're just kind of brought up in a culture that believes in the death penalty. So that was the attitude that I went into the the courtroom with. But the third day, Something just struck me. This is not right. This is just definitely not right. I looked at him, and I thought, you know, if my son was 19 years old, and if he committed a crime like that, I would definitely want him to be punished, but I wouldn't want him to be put to death by the state.
1: Yeah, and and so you saw him, and you saw a human being.
3: Right. I have to say... It's just strictly came from out of my belief in my God. And, I mean, I can get real preachy on this, but I won't. But um, I thought about everything that I had learned in the Bible about, you know, that everybody on this earth is worth. Um, I mean, God loves him as much as he loved me. God loved that murderer as much as he loved me. And who in the heck was I to sit there and say you need to die? Well, then the day that we did go in to deliver the verdict, the judge gave us instructions on how to deliver a verdict. And um, it was only one conclusion you could draw from those instructions, and that was the death penalty. Well, by that time, I had made up my mind, I did not want to give this guy the death penalty. I was going to give him life. Well, of course, someone in the jury said, you know, well, do you want him to get out? And I felt like I was just backed against a wall.
1: Lindy Lou Eisenhood continues her story from the TED stage.
3: I gave up. I gave up and voted along with the other 11 jurors. And there it was, our broken judicial system at work. Collect your belongings. You are free to go. Do not talk to reporters. My head is spinning. My heart is racing. I can't get a breath. When I get to my car, I throw everything on the back, and I just collapse into the driver's seat. I can't do this. I can't go home to my family that I haven't seen in a week and pretend to be happy. We had just sentenced a man to death. Now what? Just go home and wash dishes? (sighs) So here I am in my car, and I'm wondering, how is my life Ever going to be the same. My life was kids, work, church, ball games. Now everything felt trivial. I was going down this rabbit hole. The anger, the anxiety, the guilt, the depression, it just clung to me. I knew that I, my life had to resume. So I sought counseling. The counselor diagnosed me with PTSD, and told me that the best way to overcome the PTSD was to talk about the trauma. However, if I tried to talk about the trauma outside her office, I was shut down. No one wanted to hear about it. He was just a murderer. Get over it. Twelve years later, I learned Bobby Wilcher had dropped all of his appeals and his execution date was approaching. That was like a punch in the stomach. All of those buried feelings just started coming back. To try and find peace, I called Bobby's attorney and I said, can I see Bobby before he's executed? In my mind, Bobby was going to be manic, but Surprisingly, he was very calm. And for two hours, he and I sit there and talked about life. And I got to ask him to forgive me for my hand in his death. His words to me were, you don't have to apologize. You didn't put me here. I did this myself. But if it'll make you feel better, I forgive you. Three months later, he was executed by the state of Mississippi.
1: So, even after you spoke to him and and he forgave you, were you still carrying that trauma? Yes.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Because I guess what you felt that you had contributed to
3: a person's death.
1: A person's death.
3: Yeah. I felt like I had blood on my hands, because I said I should have been a stronger person, that I felt like my faith should have been stronger, because I felt like I was being called to be on that jury, and I was being called to stand up for that guy. And I didn't do it. And I have cried a lot, because I looked at the system. I was beginning to look at the judicial system, and I was saying, to me the judicial system is just like a it's a big broken wheel is what it is and it's almost like it's impossible to fix i'm here to tell you my story because it was precisely 22 years later when a friend encouraged me to hey perhaps you need to talk to the Other jurors, you've been through the same experience. Uncertain of what I was after, I did need to talk to them. So I set out on my quest, and I actually found most of them. One juror, and I don't know what was wrong with him, but he didn't remember anything about the trial. (laughs) Another juror, well, they just kind of regretted that it took so long to carry the sentence out. I'm thinking in my mind, geez, is this the response I'm gonna get from everybody else? Well, thank God for Alan. Alan was a gentle soul. And when I talked to him, he was genuinely upset about our decision. And he told me about the day that the devastation really set in on him and hit him. He was listening to the radio and the radio, they were, had a list of names of men to be executed at Parchment Penitentiary. And he then truly realized what he had done. And he said, you know, I had a responsibility in that man's death. And he's never told anyone about it, not even his wife. The next juror I met was Jane. Jane is now totally against the death penalty. Then there was John. John said his decision weighed on him, and it burdened him daily. I found that more of them had regrets and remorse for maybe five people that did not. You know, they they just thought he got what he deserved, and they didn't really care that we put him to death. I mean, it was just something they had to do. But there were some that it really, really bothered, and I, it's, it's really strange to sit here and say there were more men that were bothered by it than women. Hmm. So, what I call myself was a silent survivor until I got the opportunity to speak out about it.
1: Hmm. It's it's almost like a different way to look at it, Lindy. But but in a, in a sense, like through this trauma and grief that you experienced after being involved in a decision that put someone to death, it's almost like that had to happen for you to kind of find the voice that you have found, because that that would not have happened had you not been involved in this. Exactly. In this, right? Exactly.
3: You know, I didn't understand it when it first uh, happened. I didn't understand why I was chosen to be on the trial. I didn't understand why I was feeling the way I was. I didn't understand why my mind had changed. And um, now that I look back, yeah, you look back on things and you go, everything played out just like it was supposed to. Because if I had never been on that jury, I'd have probably still been the eye for an eye person. So I hate to say it, but I I thank God I was there. <laughs>
1: One of the ways you decided to move forward was to kind of devote your life to speaking out against the death penalty. Exactly. I mean it almost sounds like this sort of cause or mission is maybe one of the most important parts of your life now.
3: It is. It is. After I did my TED talk, I said to myself, Well, this is it. This is the end. I'll stay at home now because my husband still doesn't agree with me. I mean, he's very, hmm. he's still, you know, in favor of the death penalty. But after the TED Talk, I just said, okay, that's the end of this. But since the TED Talk, oh my heavens. People are coming out of the woodwork to talk to me and to want to do things with me and giving me another voice. Hmm. It's, it hasn't stopped. I mean, my husband said, I thought you said this was over. And I said, well, as long as people come to me and want to put my story out there, I'm going to do it.
1: That's Lindy Lou Eisenhood. She's now a human rights advocate. You can see Lindy's full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about moving forward. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First, to Salesforce. Have you ever wanted to know what Salesforce does? Salesforce is a customer relationship management solution. They give your employees a 360-degree view of your customers. That makes it possible for every department in your company to work together as one to deliver the seamless, personalized experiences that customers want. Salesforce, bringing companies and customers together. Visit salesforce.com slash learn more. Thanks also to Teladoc. Have you ever needed a doctor late at night or while traveling? TeleDoc offers twenty-four-seven access to board-certified doctors who can diagnose and treat conditions like sinus infections, allergies, flu, rashes, and more. Then TeleDoc's doctors can, where authorized, call in a prescription to be filled at the pharmacy of your choice. Download the app today or visit teledoc.com/radiohour.
2: NPR Music wants to hear your songs. If you're an unsigned musician, enter the Tiny Desk Contest. Just send us a video of you playing an original song behind a desk by March 30th. Learn more at npr.org slash
1: tinydeskcontest. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hello. I'm Guy Raz. Hi. Is that Suleika? Suleika. And on the show today stories and ideas on moving forward. Oh no, you're not the only one. Because, as we've heard, (laughs) it's not that easy to just move on. That resonates so deeply.
2: When we talk about moving on in the context of illness. We often use the word healing. Mm -hmm. And I think what we mean by healing often is this expectation that there's going to be an erasure of the illness or the injury and that you're going to kind of move forward through that process. And for me, healing has not been about moving on, but kind of integrating, you know, the imprints of my illness into my life, which is a really different kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, before I forget, can you please introduce yourself and tell me what you do?
2: Yeah. My name is Suleika Jawad, and I am a writer.
1: And I guess your intention in life was to do something slightly different, right?
2: Yeah. I wanted to be a reporter more specifically. I wanted to be a war correspondent, And I had just moved to Paris a few months after college and just landed what I hoped might be my first kind of small break into the world of journalism, which Mm -hmm. was an opportunity to work as a stringer. But I never got to do that.
1: Suleika Jawad picks up the story from the TED stage.
2: At 22 years old, I was diagnosed with leukemia. The doctors told me and my parents point-blank that I had about a 35 percent chance of long-term survival. I couldn't wrap my head around what that prognosis meant, but I understood that the reality and the life I'd imagined for myself had shattered. Overnight, I lost my job, my apartment, my independence, and I became patient number 5624. Over the next four years of chemo, a clinical trial and a bone marrow transplant, the hospital became my home. My bed, the place I lived 24-7. Since it was unlikely that I'd ever get better, I had to accept my new reality. And I adapted. I became fluent in medical ease, made friends with a group of other young cancer patients built a vast collection of neon wigs, and learned to use my rolling IV pole as a skateboard. I even achieved my dream of becoming a war correspondent, although not in the way I'd expected. It started with a blog reporting from the front lines of my hospital bed, and it morphed into a column I wrote for the New York Times called Life Interrupted.
1: Um, I want to ask you about um how you started to write about what you were going through how did how did that happen?
2: So when I got my diagnosis, my world changed pretty drastically. I essentially moved into a hospital room, although I didn't realize that that's what was happening at the time where I spent those first two months of treatment in isolation and my cancer wasn't responding to treatments Um, and during that first summer I not only felt obviously you know scared and just kind of horrified by what was happening in my body and and to my family but also incredibly frustrated Mm -hmm. because age 22 is an age I think for so many people where you're kind of putting yourself out into the world and figuring out who you are and what it is that you want to do and where it is that you want to be. And so I desperately wanted to figure out a way to still participate in the world from my hospital bed. You know, even though I couldn't be a reporter, I was just simply going to write in my journal every single day. And so I started not only to kind of find uh, my voice, but to uncover a different kind of writing to anything Hmm. I'd done in the past. Um, I think there's this way in which, you know, illness turns your gaze inward. Uh, As a patient, you're constantly being asked to report on yourself and on your body and on your symptoms. And so for the first time, I really began to explore this like more essayistic, first person kind of writing. Hmm. Um, And the material from those journals would end up being the material for the column I would later write. But above all else, my focus was on surviving. And, spoiler alert, (laughs) I did survive. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks to an army of supportive humans, I'm not just still here. I am cured of my cancer. So, When you go through a traumatic experience like this, people treat you differently. They start telling you how much of an inspiration you are. They say you're a warrior. They call you a hero, someone who's lived the mythical hero's journey, who's endured impossible trials and, against the odds, lived to tell the tale, returning better and braver for what you've been through. The truth is that, for me, the hardest part of my cancer experience began once the cancer was gone.
1: I think there's this natural tendency for for humans to think of experiences in terms of a story arc, right? So, like, in the case of going through illness and being cured, that's when the story ends, right? You're cured, the story ends, and then you magically sail off into the sunset. Um, But that actually is not what happens, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the oldest story arcs that we know is the story of the hero's journey. And I think, you know, next to that or maybe enmeshed in that is the survivor's journey. And in our telling of these stories, the end of that journey is the day that you're declared cancer-free or the day you finish your last day of chemotherapy. But for me, you know, if anything, it felt like the beginning because up until that point, I'd just done what I needed to do to stay alive. And the agency came into play once I was kind of out of that medical machine and tasked with figuring out how to not just survive, but actually live and figure out how to be a person back in the world.
1: Yeah. You know, um, years ago, I I covered the Iraq War and Afghanistan and spent a lot of time with troops and um, often times when they would come home from deployments in Iraq or Afghanistan. And the reentry was so difficult because in war experiencing that trauma, there was a single purpose and mission, and essentially it was to survive and to protect the people around you. And when they returned home, that sense of purpose was gone. And it, it sort of sounds like that is sort of what happened with you.
2: Totally, yeah. And it's not just your own trauma, right? It's the trauma that you witness of the patients around you. Um, out of the 10 young cancer patients that I befriended during my time in treatment, only three of us are still alive. And so for me, when I came out of this, I had PTSD, but I didn't have the language to call it that. But I think the reason that I had that sort of cognitive dissonance um, is because... On the day that I finished chemo, I received, you know, two dozen texts congratulating me on being done with treatment Um, and people saying, like, this is the best day and you're going to get to go live your life and it's going to be amazing and we're so proud of you. And, of course, my experience of that was really different. I felt totally... Physically wrecked with exhaustion uh, just from the cumulative effect of those four years of cancer treatment. I was grieving um, the death of one of my best friends, Melissa, who had died a month earlier. And I was really struggling with some of the psychological imprints of this experience. And on top of that, I think I felt this certain pressure to feel like this should be the. Best, you know, moment of this whole experience, uh, when in fact it was the very opposite. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm incredibly grateful to be alive, and I'm painfully aware that this struggle is a privilege that many don't get to experience. But being cured is not where the work of healing ends; it's where it begins. Because no one had warned me of the challenges of reentry, I thought something must be wrong with me. On most days, I woke up feeling so sad and lost, I could barely breathe. Sometimes I even fantasized about getting sick again. And let me tell you, there are so many better things to fantasize about when you're in your 20s and recently single. (laughs) But I miss the hospital's ecosystem. Like me, everyone in there was broken. But out here, among the living, I felt like an imposter, overwhelmed and unable to function. I also missed the sense of clarity I'd felt at my sickest. Staring your mortality straight in the eye has a way of simplifying things, of rerouting your focus to what really matters. And when I was sick, I vowed that if I survived, it had to be for something. It had to be to live a good life, an adventurous life, a meaningful one. But the question, once I was cured, became how? I was 27 years old, with no job, no partner, no structure. And this time, I didn't have treatment protocols or discharge instructions to help guide my way forward. But what I did have was an inbox full of internet messages from strangers. Over the years, people from all over the world had read my column, and they'd responded with letters, comments, and emails.
1: So that column, I guess, just inspired hundreds, thousands of people to write to you for a variety of reasons either they had a similar experience or they were just moved by what you wrote or they wanted to write weird things and I guess when you had a chance to really read those it was like this sort of amazing archive of just different emotions and stories
2: yeah so the title of the column was life interrupted and I think when I initially started writing it I hoped that it might be, you know, resonant with other people with cancer or maybe other young adults with cancer. But I think people kind of read into that theme of interruption so broadly in ways that I really didn't expect, ranging from like a breakup to the death of a child and everything in between. And so I found myself returning to these letters I'd received over the years and finding a great amount of Comfort and solidarity in some of these letters, um, especially the ones that were written by people who had found themselves in similar aftermath situations of having to grapple with a new body or with a new reality or with a life after you know losing someone very close to them, and the more I began. To think about these letters, the more I found myself wishing that I could actually meet some of these strangers and talk to them about their experiences as I was trying to kind of process how to recover from my own. Um, and so that's how I came up with this idea to go on a road trip.
1: Hmm. So you just started driving to, to go visit some of these people?
2: Yeah. I spent the next three months visiting these people and really trying to take... This time to reflect on what I'd been through. Um, I stayed with a family of ranchers in rural Montana, uh, whose kids, you know, go to school in a two-room schoolhouse. I stayed with a teacher in uh, the mountains of Ojai, California, who was grieving her son who had committed suicide a few years earlier. I. St- you know, went to visit this inmate on death row in Texas. And so the different places that these letters led me to were not places I ever would have discovered on my own. And in addition to being just this, like, really profound, you know, period of reckoning for my life, it was also this, like, wonderful
1: period of discovery for me. It's so interesting because we were just hearing from Nora McInerney, Mm -hmm. and um, one of the parts of our conversation that we we weren't able to include for time that she described was that, you know, after the death of her husband, Aaron, uh, she took off. She left Minneapolis with her son um, and just traveled, you know, for a while all over the country and visited friends and, and, and similarly sort of explains how she just needed to physically kind of be away, you know, be moving, be in motion, and that somehow that helped.
2: Yeah, I think trauma and grief can get stuck in your body. I think it was like this really strong instinctual sense that I needed to not just be in motion in like this vague way, but actually physically and geographically leave. I think I needed those kind of long stretches of time alone in the car or camping to actually reflect on this experience of illness and what that meant for me going forward.
1: When you think about the idea of moving forward, what does that mean in the context of your, your life and your story?
2: I think for me, it's been a process of integrating who it is that I was before my diagnosis, what it is that happened during my diagnosis, and who it is that I'm becoming now. You know, you don't get to put your illness in a box and leave it behind you. It's always a part of you. It's part of not just the way that my body feels and some of the struggles that I have, but also it's part of, you know, how I navigate the world and how I think about certain things and even how I think about time, for example. So there's no way to kind of like excise this one thing that happened from your narrative, at least for me.
1: That's Suleika Jawad. She's the writer and author of the upcoming book Between Two Kingdoms. You can see her full talk at TED.com.
3: I'm so, I'm so reborn I'm moving forward Keep moving forward Keep moving forward Ain't no stress on me, Lord I'm moving forward
1: Hey, thanks for listening to our episode on Moving Forward this week. If you want to find out more about who is on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff here at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James Delahousie, and JC Howard, with help from Daniel Shukin and Katie Monteleone. Our intern is Emmanuel Johnson. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.